The following message is made available by First Baptist Church of Crosby, Texas. For more information or to help support our ministries, please visit us online at fbccrosby.org. So we continue this evening our study of the Minor Prophets. As I told you when we began, I'm not entirely sure whether God's going to have us complete all 12 together or whether we'll go for a little while and then we will uh, take a break. But for tonight, having finished the minor prophet of uh, Jonah last week, we now move to Hosea. Now, as, as I told you, my hope was that we would be able to move through these chronologically, but that's difficult. Not all of the minor prophets identify exactly when they were um, working on behalf of God, speaking on behalf of God, generally will have some range based on the kings that are referenced or the nations that he speaks to, but it can become a, a difficult task. But it seems to me, as best I can understand this, that Jonah and Amos and Hosea and Isaiah were all prophesying right at about the same time. Based on some of the kings that are referenced here in this, here in this book, it seems as though Jonah was excuse me, Hosea was prophesying sometime in the middle of the 8th century. We know that it was at least before 750 B.C. And we know he had, a, he had a pretty long run. He prophesied all the way up through sometime after 716 B.C., which means that he would have been speaking both before, during, and after the destruction of Israel, the exile of Israel by the Assyrians. So because he had such a long span of time that God was speaking to the people through Hosea, he covered the course of a lot of kings. There were a lot of men whom he outlasted in his, uh, in his work for God. Now, Hosea speaks to both the northern and the southern kingdom, both Israel and Judah, throughout his time as God's, God's messenger, as God's spokesman. So what we will... It's helpful for us, I think, to think about the context in which Hosea is speaking. Again, much of what we've talked about in the life of Jonah is going to apply. Assyria was the big boy on the block. They were threatening and demanding payment from the people of Israel. So because of this, Israel always had this compulsion within them to turn to another big boy on the block to protect them. You'll find over and over through the prophets that God is warning his people, don't turn to other nations. Don't turn back to Egypt or one of these others and seek protection from them. I am your God, and I am your protector. But what we do know is right about this time that we're reading this story in Hosea, Israel would have been on an upswing. That Because of some of the reforms that had come under kings like Uzziah, the nation was strong. They were militarily strong. They were financially strong. They were politically, to some sense, strong. And yet, despite all of that strength, despite all of the favor that God had shown them in all of these various areas, from a spiritual level, they were down, down, down. We would see a king like Hezekiah that would come, and he would introduce some um, religious reforms, but that would only serve to kind of stem the tide for a little bit. It would not completely turn the people's hearts away. So we're reminded that despite all of God's favor, despite all of his strengthening of a nation, there is no guarantee that that nation will turn and thank him and honor him the way that he's due. We're also reminded that God's favor, God's blessing upon a nation or a church or a household or a people, it is not always directly proportional to that people's faithfulness. That God will pour out this common grace upon man despite the fact that they are completely undeserving. Even men who spit in his face and go after false gods, 
that God oftentimes, when he says that he causes it to rain on the just and the unjust alike, this does not mean that everyone gets the equal grace in that area. There are times when some of the richest, some of the most powerful people in all the world are those who have no use for God. So we see that this nation at this time, they were just doing some abominable things. That under King Ahaz, they had begun Baal worship. They had turned completely, not just were they not worshiping God on his terms, they were worshiping false gods. If you go back to the Wednesday nights where we worked together through the Ten Commandments, you recall how much of that time we spent talking about God's demand, not just that he be the only God we worship, not just that there is no other God, but the way in which we worship him. That God's glory is of such importance to him that the way in which we approach this God of glory is of such importance to him that we must approach on his terms or not at all. We find that the people have not only just turned away from worshiping Yahweh the way that he demands, that they're worshiping false gods altogether. Now, along with this, any time that there is a religious um, upheaval, any time that there is a downward trend with the people's spiritual estate, there's going to be social changes as well. You think about a prophet like Amos and all the word that he spoke against Israel because of the ways that they mistreated the poor and the widow and the outcast. But those were just the symptoms. The outward things that we see, we need to be reminded, the outward things that we see, those are just symptoms of something that is deeper, of a corruption that takes hold of a man's heart. That ultimately, we can deal with feeding the widows, taking care of the orphans, treating the outcasts better than we do, but unless there's a heart change, unless there's an internal reformation, none of these things are going to matter. That the only hope we have is some type of internal spiritual change that is wrought by the Spirit of God. So we see with the nations that these things, these outward evils that they committed, they weren't the real issue, they were the symptoms. Did God have concern for the widow and for the orphan and for the less fortunate? Of course he does. But ultimately it was the heart that matters. And so we see that Hosea, as we work through this book, we'll see that Hosea, he's particularly troubled, as I said earlier, because of Israel's continual turning away from God as their provider and to the power of other nations, nations like, uh, like Assyria at times and Egypt. And I'm reminded as we read through this that our provision is not found in anything in this world. No matter how big, no matter how powerful, no matter how promising these earthly things may be, that our hope comes only from the Lord. And that we find ourselves in great danger anytime we allow our eyes or our minds or our hopes to drift to anything else. We must also remember as we work through this, and I'm not going to give a, I'm not going to give a full an introduction to Hosea as I did to Jonah. I found that some of that stuff became a bit repetitive and I lost some of you in that. But one more thing to keep in mind as we come into this book together is the blessings and the curses that God had spoken over his people at Sinai. That these were people who were still in covenant with God. And you remember in the book of Deuteronomy as the people finally prepared to enter in and take possession of the land that God has promised. After 40 years of wandering because of their disobedience, because of their unfaithfulness, God had the people of Israel stand upon one mountain and another and speak both the blessings and the curses that would come upon them either from obedience or for disobedience. That anything that God brings upon his people is more than deserved. There's never a man that can look to God and say, God, I don't deserve this. I deserve much better. God, you've in some way done me wrong. That's never the case. That anything short of an eternity in hell, anything short of closing our eyes in death in this life and opening them to God's eternal wrath, every single bit of that is nothing but grace, but particularly for the people of Israel who knew what the curses were. 
who knew what the promises of blessings were for obedience and knew what the promised curses were for disobedience. They, amongst all the people on the earth, they could never look to God and say, God, we don't deserve this because they had had the eyes of their hearts enlightened. They had seen what God had promised. And so we're reminded that with great insight, with great blessing from God, is going to come greater accountability. So with that, we're going to study tonight the first chapter in this book of Hosea. I'm not real sure. Let me just give you a, a disclaimer. I have no clue how this thing is going to break up. There, there's a lot of, of poetry in here mixed in with, with some narrative, and I, I don't really know the way that God is going to break this up. I don't think it's going to be possible for us probably to work line by line through every single chapter of this book, and so I'm really curious. I've not ever preached through a prophet before other than the two before this, but I've not ever preached through a book like this before, and so I'm genuinely curious to see the way that God causes us to handle it. I would encourage you, if you find time, to go ahead and, and read through this book in your own time, just to get, in a, get acquainted with it, get a feel for the flow of the way God spoke through this prophet. So I'll read to you Hosea chapter 1. The word of the Lord that came to Hosea, the son of Beri, in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz and Hezekiah, the kings of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel. When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go, take for yourself a wife of whoredom, and have children of whoredom, from the land, for the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. So he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Diblam, and she conceived and bore him a son. And the Lord said to him, Call his name Jezreel, for in just a little while I will punish the house of Jehu for the blood of Jezreel, and I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. And on that day I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. She conceived again and bore a daughter. And the Lord said to him, Call her name No Mercy, for I will no more have mercy on the house of Israel to forgive them at all. But I will have mercy on the house of Judah, and I will save them by the Lord their God. I will not save them by bow, or by sword, or by war, or by horses, or by horsemen. When she had weaned no mercy, she conceived and bore a son. And the Lord said, Call his name not my people, for you are not my people, and I am not your God. Yet the number of the children of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And in a place where it is said to, said to them, you are not my people, it shall be said to them, children of the living God. And the children of Judah and the children of Israel shall be gathered together, and they shall appoint for themselves one head, and they shall go up from the land, and great shall be the day of Jezreel. I'm curious, how many of you have ever studied the book of Hosea? A few of you. I think it's a favorite in ladies' Bible studies, isn't it? Sweet story. So we, we find here in this first verse a bit, of a, it's a bit of a superscript like we find in the Psalms. It doesn't appear to be part of the text, although it is the inspired word of God, but it's a bit of a superscript here that kind of sets the stage. Who is it that's speaking, and where was he serving? Where and when was he serving? And so we read, the word of the Lord came to Hosea, the son of Beri. In the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, Hezekiah, kings of Judah, in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of of Israel. Now we don't know why they only listed one king of the northern nation of uh, the northern kingdom of Israel 
while he listed so many of the southern. But we must not get confused into thinking there was only one king in the northern, na- in the northern kingdom during this entire time. There were many, but perhaps this was the most prominent, this was the most important to what God was speaking through him. But again, we see just as with Jonah and so many other prophets, it begins the word of the Lord. I will remind you every time we come to this, that there is no more powerful thing in all the earth, no more powerful words in all the earth than for a man to say, God said to me. That there are no authoritative words of God or partially authoritative words of God. It's not as though they're the word of God which is guaranteed to be true which is powerful and life-breathing. The same God who breathed out the SARS, he speaks some words that are authoritative and demand our absolute obedience, and then there are some lesser words over here. This is one of the reasons that I call men to take care. Listen, a lot of people have red-letter Bibles. I've got no issue with a red-letter Bible in and of itself, but we need to be very, very careful that we don't take the words of Christ to be the super-duper words of God and all the rest to be something lesser. That The words spoken through the prophet through the apostle Paul, those two were breathed by God. It is the word of Christ spoken through his appointed representative. All the words that we find in this book are the breathed out, authoritative, inerrant, infallible, sufficient words of God. But then when a man comes up to you and he says, I've got a word to you from God, he needs to be very, very careful with what he says next because he is proclaiming for himself, he is claiming for himself authority that belongs only to God's word. So any word that a man says to you and he says this word comes from God, you must test it against the revealed word of God. If not, if what he says did not match up with what God has said, he's to be rejected as a false prophet. We're also reminded that Hosea, we don't find him here asking for a word from God. We don't know what he was doing. Perhaps he was just minding his own business. But he didn't sign up at prophet school. He didn't raise his hand and say, God, would you please give me a word? It was a man that was just there doing his thing, and at that point, God spoke to him. Now, the name Hosea, it means the same thing as Joshua or Yeshua. It means God saves. Now, we don't want to read too much into the names of men because there's plenty of names all throughout Scripture that don't mean a whole lot. I mean, they mean something in terms of why the parents chose them, but they don't foretell anything. They don't point forward to any kind of fate that awaits that man. But I think within a book where so much attention is paid to the names of his children, maybe we should pay attention to the name of the prophet. So again, I tell you that he's prophesying during a time of great military might and and wealth and spiritual sickness all at the same time. If you go through and you read the second half of 2 Kings, beginning in about chapter 18, something like this, you'll read about a lot of these kings that are spoken of during the time of Hosea. So we're reminded that when things went badly for the people, as God had blessed them with wealth and military might, that despite their spiritual sickness, then whenever they found that things began to go wrong for them, instead of turning back to God, instead of turning back to the one that had placed them in the land, they just doubled down. I see much of myself in that. I will get myself into a pinch because I've rebelled against God, I've sinned against him in some way, I've dishonored him or placed my trust in something else. And then the inevitable hardship comes. The hand of discipline from God comes upon me. And far too many times, instead of turning back to him in repentant faith, I double down. I go after more. This is going to turn out differently this time. So verse 2, when the Lord first spoke to Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea. So this is the beginning, right? This is the very beginning of Hosea's prophetic career, it seems to me. And what a way to begin, right? 
He comes right out of the gate with something really, really hard. He doesn't get to go. You remember I told you about Jonah that it seemed as though before God had called him to go to the Ninevites, he was allowed to speak a prophecy of hope to the people of Israel that they would recapture some land in the northern kingdom. He doesn't get any such thing. He comes right out the gate with a really, really hard assignment that not only would Hosea be speaking the word of God, he would be acting it out. He was going to be displaying for the people. And this is not unique to Hosea. We saw prophets like Ezekiel. They would, they would act out the prophecies or the judgments of God. It's a reminder that God uses the whole of creation to impart his message to us at times. That we're reminded that the glory of God is spoken in the stars and in a newborn baby. That God is revealing himself and that even through his prophet, oftentimes it's not through the spoken word. It's going to be through the thing that he acts out. So what does he say to him? He says, go. Take for yourself a wife of whoredom, have children of whoredom, for the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. Amanda asked me to go to lunch today, um, and I said, I can't. I have to go into the office and study and figure out how many times I'm going to have to say the word whoredom in a sanctuary full of friends and children. That's it for today, thankfully. There's more to come. But he tells him this is what's going to happen. You're going to go out and you're going to take for yourself an unchaste woman. Now, it does not seem to me that what God is saying is that this woman is a professional harlot. It seems to me that he's speaking something about the woman's character. Now, we don't know. Did everyone know that this was the kind of character that this woman had? We also don't know. He says that you would take for yourself these children. It says here, have children. It could also be translated, take for yourself. Just as he says, take for yourself a wife like this, also take these children. So were these children that she already had outside of this marriage that she brought into the marriage? Or is he only speaking to the children that would be conceived within the bounds of their marriage? We're not told. But what we do know for sure is that people would have been talking. A man who spoke on behalf of God, a man who represented God in his speech and sought to honor God, for this man to take of himself an unchaste woman like this, an unfaithful woman like this, this would have certainly caused a stir amongst the people. And we do know at very least that we don't know whether this woman was already practicing her harlotry at this moment. I don't know if that's a word. But if she was already practicing that at this moment and that Hosea was going to go and call her to herself in the middle of her unfaithfulness, in the middle of her sexual deviation, or deviancy, excuse me, or was he just saying this is who she will become after the day of marriage? Either way, we know that Hosea didn't have to look backwards to see God's plan. He told him on the front end, this is what you're getting into. You remember I talked to you, I guess it was last Sunday morning, I talked to you about the fact that God's providence, it can only be seen looking backwards. That we don't know right when we're in the middle of something what it is that God's doing. That it's often on the back side of this that we look back and we go, now I see. Now you've revealed to me how those pieces fit together. With the case of Hosea, he didn't have to look backwards to see what God was doing. God told him on the front end, you're going to take a woman like this to yourself because this is the way that the nation has acted. He tells this man, you're going to receive for yourself a wife. You're going to give up any hope of having a, a sacred, a secure, a holy union with this woman in order to portray my message to the people of Israel. What a thing. God, can I get another assignment? Could you send me to Nineveh? I heard what you did with Jonah and that worked out okay. Instead, he tells him that this is what he's going to have to do. And I'm reminded as we see this story that as this woman, Gomer, as she represents the people of Israel, she represents their unfaithfulness, we're reminded that God, too, knew who we were. 
that when God called Israel to himself, he knew exactly what she was. Not the strongest, not the greatest, not the most mighty, not the most faithful. I want you to think about their time in the wilderness. Moses going up to meet with God. No sooner had God given them the law. He had just redeemed them from slavery in Israel. And no sooner had God given Moses the law than they were already down there worshiping a golden calf. That they were an unfaithful people from the very beginning. There's some evidence that they were probably unfaithful to Yahweh, I would imagine, even in their time in slavery in Egypt, and yet he called them to himself. And we're reminded that this is not just the story of Israel. It's a story of all God's people. He knew who you were when he called you. We'll talk to people so often about coming and, 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 and bringing their family to church and, and, and seeking to know something about the gospel and giving their lives to God. And how often do they say, but you don't know the things I've done. You don't know the sins that I've committed. We're reminded that he does. He knows not only the things that you have done in the past, he knows the propensity and the pull of your heart today and every single future sin that you'll commit. And there's never a one that's gonna catch him off guard. There's never been a single time when God was in heaven he thought, I didn't know that was the kind of guy I was welcoming into my family. He chose you in spite of your sin, knowing full well your unfaithfulness towards him. So we see that Already right there at Mount Sinai, we see the unfaithfulness of these people. God has called them to himself, he to be their groom and they to be the bride. And already, no sooner is the ink dry. I got to sign my first marriage certificate this week. Right? That, was a, that was a cool thing for me. I don't know if it meant a whole lot to the people down at the state office, but I got to sign it. It's a big deal. No sooner had the ink dried on the marriage certificate than Israel was turning their back on their covenant. They were turning their back on their commitment before God. Verse 3. So he, that's Hosea, went and took Gomer, the daughter of Diblaim, and she conceived and bore him a son. I would love to know the way that this conversation goes, right? Excuse me there, ma'am. I've been told that I'm to marry a harlot. You look like just the one. And by the way, you've got a beautiful name. Gomer? I don't know how this worked, right? Did God lead her to this woman? I have to imagine that, that God had revealed to her that this was the one. Or again, was she already living this kind of lifestyle? We don't really know, but he went and he married her. It was a legitimate marriage before God. I tend to believe, by the way, not that you asked, I tend to believe that probably she was not living that lifestyle beforehand. I, I may be wrong, but, but I tend to believe that probably he knew who she was going to become. He knew the, the sin that was welling up within her heart, but she was already, already in the middle of this kind of practice when he called her. But either way, it's a legitimate marriage, and we read here that she conceived and bore him a son. Now, you'll hear people, if you read through, as you read through the various commentaries, you'll hear people that, that are kind of back and forth trying to figure out, was just the first child Hosea's and then the others were not? Because there's a different language when we get to them. And we're not really told, but we know for certain that this child belonged to Hosea. They came together as God has commanded. They were fruitful. They multiplied, and they bring forth this child. And the Lord said to him, call his name Jezreel. For in a little while I will punish the house of Jehu for the blood of Jezreel, and I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. My mind was immediately drawn to the story of priest Zechariah the father of John the Baptist and how he didn't follow the normal naming pattern that he would name this child John 
but God would name this child, and his name would be Jezreel. Now, Jezreel, as best we can tell, was a valley in which there was a lot of bloodshed. In 2 Kings 21, we read about a man named Naboth. Naboth had a vineyard, and apparently King Ahab really wanted this vineyard. And so under the influence of his wife Jezebel, they figured out a plan where they could take this valley from this man. I'll read to you from verse 5. This is 2 Kings 21, verse 5. So Ahab comes home, right? He's gone to try and get He's gone to try to get the vineyard from Naboth. He said, no, I'm not going to sell it. It's my family's inheritance. I got to pass it on to my sons. He just told the king no. So he comes home and he's really sad. But Jezebel, his wife, came to him and said to him, why is your spirit so vexed that you eat no food? And he said to her, because I spoke to Naboth, the Jezreelite, and said to him, give me your vineyard for money or else, if it pleases you, I will give you another vineyard for it. And he answered, I will not give you my vineyard. And Jezebel, his wife, said to him, Do you not govern Israel? Arise, eat the bread, and let your heart be cheerful. I will give you the vineyard of Naboth, the Jezreelite. So so she wrote letters in Ahab's name and sealed them with his seal. And she sent the letters to the elders and the leaders who lived with Naboth in his city. And she wrote in the letters, Proclaim a fast. And set Naboth at the head of the people, and set two worthless men opposite him, and let them bring a charge against him, saying, You have cursed God and the king. Then take him out and stone him to death. So Amanda's a part. I don't know if she really pays attention anymore, but she was when we first, when I first was called as your pastor. Amanda was a part of some uh, pastor's wife. Facebook pages or something like this and she said like every third post was somebody claiming there was a Jezebel spirit in their church and they needed to get her out I don't even know what that meant it would be over something like choir music or the color of the carpet or something I don't think they knew who Jezebel really was the husband desired a vineyard the man which was within his right said no and instead she takes the king's signet ring she stamps it she sends out a message saying call a feast and then lie about this man that you can take his life and have him stoned now the prophet Elijah of course came along and he spoke against Ahab and he said God has seen what you have done and he will judge you he will judge you and he will kill you as a result of this and so we find that not long after that King Jehu comes along King Ahab has already died in battle that the king um, King Jehu comes along And he does this thing that God has said. He takes the life of Jezebel. He takes the life of all of Ahab's family and friends, even all those who had supported him. And then he takes all the prophets of Baal, he rounds them up, and he slaughters them all. And yet we see here that what Hosea is saying is that because of this thing that Jehu has done, God will repay the people for the bloodshed in that place, in Jezreel. So we're reminded that just because God uses a man to carry out his judgment does not exclude that man from any sin and wickedness within his heart. That King Jehu, even in carrying out God's judgment, acted evilly. Was it because he was overly, overly violent? Was it because he had an overly heavy hand? Or was it just because of the spirit within him? I keep having my mind drawn back to the story of God's judgment upon Israel at the hand of the Assyrians in Isaiah 10. What you find there is God is saying, I've picked up Assyria like a club in my hand. It is the rod of my discipline against my people. And yet, because of the haughtiness in their heart, I'm going to judge Assyria for doing this thing that I've said they will do. 
This is what we see here in the life of this man called Jehu. Now, in addition to being a violent man and an overly aggressive man in the carrying out of this thing that God had said would happen, we also know that from Jehu came a dynasty of wicked kings. If you read through the lineage of King Jehu, every king that came after him, they were wicked, evil, detestable men. So that just as God has promised here in the book of Hosea, his family would be wiped out. His dynasty would end pretty swiftly. Verse 5. And on that day, I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. So anytime you see the, any reference to a bow in Scripture, it's talking about military might. He's telling the people of Israel, I'm not going to allow you to turn back to the place where you find your comfort and your strength. Where do you find your comfort and your strength? Where in your own life do you find yourself looking apart from God? Where do you find your eyes turning? And we'd like to all imagine that what happens is when trouble comes, when the enemy lines up at the gate, that our immediate response is to fall on our face before God and trust wholly and completely in him, no matter what the outcome is. But at least for me, that would be a lie. I'll offer a prayer, but oftentimes it's just a tip of the cap while I then go out and try to find the answers myself. And he's saying, I will break your bow so that you've got nothing left to turn back to. It caused you to burn the boat and reveal to you you've got no other hope in all the universe but this God whom you have been unfaithful to. You're going to come back to me or you're not going to come back at all. So is it money? Is it your personality? Is it your friendships? Is it your reputation? What are the things that you find yourself turning to when troubles come instead of God? Verse 6, then she, that's Gomer, conceived again and bore a daughter. So again, I tell you, that's the question that comes up. It doesn't say here, and bore him a daughter. It just says, and bore a daughter. So was this a daughter that she conceived some outside of wedlock with another man? I don't know if that really matters for, this, for the purpose of the story because what matters is the woman's name or the, the child's name. And the Lord said to him, call her name, no mercy, for I will no more have mercy on the house of Israel to forgive them at all. Another translation reads, but I will surely take them away. Verse seven, but I will have mercy on the house of Judah and I will save them by the Lord their God. So these people would be taken away by the hands of the Assyrians. That's why this translation that I will surely take them away. It is the rod of God's judgment, this nation called Assyria that God would raise up, that he would send in and because of their unfaithfulness, he would cause them to be dragged away. Now, when he says here that I will, I will not forgive them at all, he does not speak about the entire nation of Israel. He's not speaking about the entire northern kingdom of Israel. We know this can't be true because there's always a faithful remnant. But he's talking about the nation as, a, nation as a whole. Much like the apostle Paul, he wept for the people of Israel. He wept for the Jewish people because they were lost. Despite the fact that they had the covenants and the promises and the patriarchs and the Christ himself, despite the fact the nation of Israel, the Jewish people, they were lost. But he didn't mean all the Jewish people. He was a Jew. All the apostles were Jews. So he doesn't mean the whole of the nation, but he means the nation as a whole. Apart from that small faithful remnant that God has held on to, he says, I will have no more mercy for you. But of the people of Judah, I will. I will save them by the Lord their God. That's a difficult, when you see these parallels together, it's difficult to figure out exactly what to do with this. We know that the northern ten tribes of Israel, they did find a different fate from the two southern tribes of Judah. 
We know the 10 tribes, they were conquered much earlier, 722 BC, the Assyrians came in, they dragged them away, and we know that they were scattered. They didn't get to come back like the southern tribes from Babylon and reestablish the temple and the city walls and the worship there in that place. So was this all that Hosea was speaking to here? Was he just saying, look, when the Assyrians come, both in 722 and about 10 years later when they would come in a second attack against Judah, that God would spare them? Maybe. Was he saying, look, I will cause Judah to go off into exile just as I will Israel, but I will allow Judah to come back at the end of that exile? Maybe. We don't know. But clearly there's something about the northern ten tribes that has caught the ire of God. That God's judgment is coming upon them today while Judah will be spared. He says, I will not save them by the bow or by the sword or by war or by horse or by horsemen. Now, he's not saying here, I asked you earlier, what things do you turn to? What things do you find your hope in outside of God? He's now taking away the opportunity for them to trust only in God's provision. And I want you to understand the difference here. I find myself, even in those times when I turn to God and I cry out to him for mercy and help, oftentimes I find myself worshiping and trusting and relying in not God himself, but God's provision. That God has only been a faithful God if he sends the thing that I think I need. So God, my trust is in money, but instead of going out there to earn money, I'm gonna come to you and pray for money. God, my trust is in horses and chariots and swords, and instead of going to Egypt to find those things, I'm just gonna ask you for those things. What we've got to understand is whenever we find ourselves doing this, this is akin to me going to Amanda and saying, would you give me a few dollars to take my girlfriend out? I've been unfaithful to you and I'll place my trust in something else. Now I'm coming through you to get the thing. I'm seeing God as a means to an end rather than the end himself. Are you tracking? So there's a way, it is possible, for the people of God to come before him in prayer, trusting completely on him, and yet falling in love with his provision instead of him. So he says, I'm not going to save you by those ordinary means. That's why we find so often, I, I don't know how many times I've found this in my own life to be true, that God would take away every single way of escape, every single obvious and ordinary way that provision could come, and he leads me to this one place where it can be nothing but him. Or that he leads me to this place, and then the provision that I think is going to come doesn't come, and he says, do you still trust me? Are you still going to rest in me? Are you still going to call me good? Or am I only good whenever I'm that big genie in the sky that gives you the thing that you need? Isaiah 31.1, woe to those who go down to Egypt for help and rely on horses, who trust in chariots, because they are many, and in horsemen, because they are very strong. But do not look to the Holy One of Israel or consult the Lord. Is God going to be enough if we lose every single material comfort? Is God going to be enough if every single, good things, and I'm talking about us as a people, by the way. Those of you who weren't here on Wednesday night, I preached through the 44th Psalm. Psalm 42 and 43 are songs of personal lament. Why are you cast down, O my soul, hope in God? That's the pattern there. As you come to the 44th Psalm, it's talking about a national lament. It's talking about a people who are grieving. And my challenge to the group that was here on that night was, how will we suffer together 
Not how will each one of you suffer individually. How will we suffer together as a people? Because the harder we charge after God, the more we hold his word as our only hope, there will be suffering. So the question is, will he be enough if all the other things get stripped away? Because there's people that are worshiping God in caves right now, worshiping God in underground house churches right now. There's a man somewhere in this country or somewhere in this world right now that is leading his family in worship and they can't even get to any other believers to do life with. They're their own little church right there where they are. So the question is, will he be enough if he leads us to that place? Or do we only trust in his provision? His money or his buildings or his air conditioning or whatever else. We're also reminded of the futility when it's God's hand of judgment that comes against us. The futility of resisting. Think back again to Jonah. When God's hand of judgment came upon that wayward prophet, he brought the storm upon the sea, the people threw all the cargo overboard, and they started rowing. And it was silliness. All they did was wasted energy. That our immediate response to any hardship and trouble in this world is to turn to God and cry out to him alone for mercy, to ask him to examine us, to reveal to us any sin that needs to be uh, rightly handled, and then ask what is the righteous and proper response to this today. Verse 8. When she had weaned, no mercy. Can you imagine these kids going to school though, right? Because every time these kids' names were called, it was a statement of condemnation on the whole people of Israel. They knew that what this man was doing. He wasn't doing this in a closet, right? He was doing this as a public statement. This wasn't just something secret for just the family. This wasn't just he and his wife and his mother-in-law going, I really don't like that name, so let's just not call her name out when she's in the street. No, this was a statement against the entire nation so that every time someone came into contact with one of these children, they remembered a God has spoken a word of judgment through his prophet. And it is so settled that this girl's name has been set, no mercy. But she grows and she's weaned. And then Gomer conceived and bore a son. And the Lord said, call his name, not my people, for you are not my people, and I am not your God. When we talk through the covenant of grace, when we talk through particularly the Abrahamic covenant and this insistence of God that he would be the people, he would be the God of his people, and that they would be his people. I've told you there was no greater promise than this. What it means for God to be our God is for God to be holy and completely for us. Everything that he is. We sat here for 18 months and we talked about the attributes of God on Wednesday night. His wisdom and his knowledge and his power and his goodness and his presence and his faithfulness. Then when I come and I stand before you and I say God is your God, that means that every single bit of that is for you. Is for your good. And for us to be his people means he's not going to lose sight of us. That we are his. We are his treasured possession. What did we say two weeks ago? His inheritance. His portion. And if that's the ultimate blessing, that's the greatest good, can there be any greater curse than for him to say, I will no longer call you my people for you are not my people and I am not your God. Now sadly, for much of the world, we could go out and we could preach that news you go out to share the gospel with people and the bad news that precedes the good news if you were to tell them listen you're not the people of God how much would most of them care I don't know because they're going to continue to drink 
the water that he provides and eat the food that he provides and wear the clothes that he provides. As long as he just keeps, keeps giving me stuff, why would I care? But for the people of Israel, this was a damning statement. You are no longer my people and I am no longer your God. But what about the covenant promises? How can God say that? He had issued forth these promises to Abraham. He had confirmed them with Isaac and with Jacob. Could God just turn his back on this people? Again, I tell you, he knew they were unfaithful. He knew who they were when he called them. They didn't get out of the desert before they were already turning their back on him. So would God then continue to repeat these promises to this people only to then in the middle of this unfaithfulness, as awful as it is, as detestable as it is, would God then turn his back on these promises? Verse 10. Yet the number of children of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. Seems to me as though God, through Hosea, is immediately drawing our heart back to those promises to Father Abraham. Does this sound like that same kind of language? Too many children to count, like the sand of the sea, like the stars of the sky, sky this shall be your children. He's promising them, your line's not going to end. That this generation will pay for this. This generation, they will not see Israel, the land of Israel, again. They will go off and they will die. My hand of judgment is upon them. And yet because of my faithfulness towards my promises, a remnant shall remain. I will hold fast to my people, not just a small remnant for all time, a remnant that will come too large, too many to even be counted. I point your eyes often to the Garden of Eden because there's so much of what we can understand about God's redemptive plan playing out right there. And you'll remember that Adam and Eve, they had been told the wages of sin are death. They sinned. They, had every, they should have had every expectation that on that day, this project called humanity, it's just over. God's just going to wipe us out. We're sinners. Maybe he'll start over with another man and a woman, but there's no hope for a future. There's no expectation. We're not owed a future, right? But then God comes in, and what does he do? He immediately, right there in Genesis 3.15, he promises the offspring of woman that will crush the head of the serpent. He covers their nakedness. And he promises them there is a future. And we see right there at the end of that poetic section in Genesis 3 where God is dealing the curses to Adam and to Eve and to the serpent, right there at the end we read that the man called his wife Eve for she would be the mother of all the living. You wouldn't call your wife Eve the mother of all the living if you didn't trust there was going to be some living. You didn't trust that God was going to uphold his promise, that he wasn't going to wipe you out completely. So we see right here God telling these people, listen, yes, this judgment's going to come. Yes, you're going to be carried away. And you people, you may not live to see the land again. But I will so increase the number of your offspring, there will be too many to count. I will uphold my promise despite your faithlessness. Much like the people of Israel that wandered around in the, in the wilderness, they died, but their children came into the land. And the place where it is said to them, you are not my people, it shall be said to them, children of the living God. Now, in Romans 9, we find the Apostle Paul quoting this statement. You remember the whole context of Romans 9. Paul is mourning for the lostness of the Jews. And he goes into this whole explanation of how God will have mercy on whom he will have mercy. He will harden whom he will harden. We get to the end of this where he has said, I am a merciful God, but my mercy is not owed to anyone i'll have mercy on either the jews or the gentiles as i see fit for i'm the one who makes from the same lump of clay vessels of mercy or vessels of wrath 
And then he quotes this verse right here. I will say to them, you, are, you who are not my people, it shall be said to them, children of the living God. How will this people of, of, of too great number to count, how will they come about? They will come about from all the nations. That was always God's plan, going all the way back to the beginning, that he would be calling a people to himself from every tongue, from every tribe, from every nation. There will be a faithful remnant in Israel, and added to that will be faithful believers from all over the world. That this is the promise. Verse 11. And the children of Judah and the children of Israel shall be gathered together, and they shall appoint for themselves one head, and they shall go up from the land, for great shall be the day of Jezreel. This is promise, I believe, of the coming Messiah. They shall be gathered together under one. No longer will the northern tribe have their own king, the southern tribe have their own king, and all the nations be scattered. They will all, bring, all be brought together under one, the promised king, the son of man, the son of David, the Messiah. It's looking forward. We're reminded that while much of the punishment that comes upon God's people, it comes in the immediacy. He says, soon, very soon I'm going to wipe out the people of Jehu, the name of Jehu will be wiped out. And we know that depending on when this letter was written, it's no more than 30 years before the Assyrians are going to come in and drag them into exile. That the judgment comes now, but that the hope is in the distant future. The hope is in the coming day of the Lord. That these people may not be there to see the ultimate fulfillment of that hope, but the question is, will they trust in his promises? Okay. So, what do we make of this? Number one, as I've already challenged you, you examine yourself for spiritual adultery. You ask yourself, in what things have I placed my hope? You will not know these things often until you come in under a time of incredible pressure. I've told you before about the time that a man and I were fairly newly married. We got, we we're kind of like Jose and Gomer. We had our first baby. Well, no, no, that's not, that didn't work. We're not like Jose and Gomer. <laughs> but we did have our first baby really quick. That's better. I don't know why I said that. <laughs> so we, we had our first kid. We had Annie. And I remember we had gone out for something, and we, and we came home, and the back door was wide open. And back then I didn't, have a, I didn't have a pistol. I didn't have a shotgun. I didn't have anything. And so we get to the back door. The back door's open, and I immediately look at Amanda, and I call the name of one of our neighbors, and I said, get to his house. Before that moment, I didn't know what I thought of that neighbor. He was a little bit squirrely. But at least I found out on that day, apparently I trust that guy enough, I'm going to send my wife and newborn kid over there when I think there might be a monster in my house. Oftentimes, God's going to lead you into these times of incredible stress and trial and suffering just to expose to you where your heart really is. What do I turn to? Sadly for me, oftentimes, it's just plain junk food. Amanda comes home, she opens the trash pull out. She looks down. She sees all the wrappers and says, what happened? Not what happened to the food. What happened at work today? Why are you so stressed out? And why do you think that little Debbie is going to be the answer? And we laugh. But again, if she had come home, pulled out the trash bin, and found 12 beer cans in there, it wouldn't have been all that different. It would have been a whole lot less funny. So to what things do I turn? Number two, no matter where you have turned in the past, no matter where you find yourself turning even now, would you trust in the mercy of God? Would you trust that his faithfulness, 
that his grace, that his mercy is infinitely greater than your unfaithfulness. That instead of digging or instead of even trying to find your way back to him, you stop where you are, bless you, you stop where you are and you cry out to him for mercy. Father God, we praise you and we thank you. I thank you for this day and I thank you for this people. Father, it is not a normal group of people that want to gather together on a Sunday night and study together the minor prophets, but these do. So I pray your blessing upon them for the time we have spent here tonight. I pray your blessing on the other members of this faith family that aren't here this evening. I pray that you would be with them, that this would be a time of rest and uh, spiritual refreshment, a time of worship, even in their home. Father, we love you. We trust you and we thank you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.